The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Come on, ref, get out of the way. Come on now! Holiday! What the hell was that? The, the official was standing in, in Vegas way. Holiday, there was already tons of controversy surrounding this event. Controversy? Just... What controversy? Kim, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Official. Come on, you called that right down the middle. Absolutely, just like when the Lakers played the Kings, everything was on the up and up. Right down and the you're... middle. Yeah, it's exactly like... Oh, 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 this is oh, bullshit. You oh. got in the way. Hey, you got in my way. You, you the clip you just heard was from Tim Donahue's official Major League Wrestling debut. Donahue has kept busy, and so have we. We're back with new episodes and a new voice. But before we dive in, it's been a minute. So let's start off with a quick refresher. The scandal peaked during the 2006-2007 NBA season, but Donahue started betting on his own games in 2003. I love the gamble. You know, eventually just spilled over to, you know, the NBA. Donahue contends that the NBA assigned veteran referees to important playoff and finals games with the expectation that the veteran referee would help propel the more marketable team to victory. The NBA had a major influence in what they wanted the referees to call on a given night. The NBA's response to the scandal was masterminded by former commissioner David Stern. Stern suffered a brain hemorrhage on December 12, 2019, and passed away a few weeks later. Hours after Stern's initial brain hemorrhage, I sat down with retired FBI agent Phil Scala for our most important interview to date. We believe that what he said was the truth. About the NBA? Yeah. But, you know, you know what you're going up against. Donahue says that he never fixed games. But in season one, his best friend, Tommy Martino, revealed that Donahue was making incorrect calls to influence the outcome of games. He blew the whistle was for our team that we had. If it was our guy, it was on. Season one of Whistleblower started by asking a fundamental basketball question. How much influence does a referee have on a game? And ended with a bigger question. How deep does the fix go? I'm your host, Tim Livingston. Welcome back to Whistleblower. This is the first of two bonus episodes featuring the one voice you haven't heard but need to hear. The third member of the trio that masterminded the biggest known game-fixing scandal in sports history. The gambler, the sheep, Jimmy Baba Batista. Degenerate better and couldn't fucking win. The only games he could win was the games that he had the whistle in his mouth. And that was the games that he was officiating, which he was pretty damn good. No one better on the face of the earth than I ever seen. When we started producing Whistleblower, I called Jimmy Batista and asked him for an interview. He told me in no uncertain terms to fuck off. Now, Batista and I have built up a little rapport and we're talking on the phone multiple times a week. 
I have Batista's permission to record each call, but every time he starts talking about something interesting, this happens. Hold on, you can't tape this, what I'm saying, because this is, could get me in trouble. Stop that. You can never repeat that, because he no, can get yeah. Yeah. Stop that. Recorded conversations, historically, have not gone well for Jimmy. Wiretaps helped land him in prison. Half of his network turned into government informants. Batista likes to talk, but he's been burned too many times. I'm trying to be patient, but it's been a few weeks, and Jimmy's refusing to go on the record with what I need. Then, one morning, I found a subject he was willing to talk about. I was betting on Scott Foster's games. He went one in six. He sucked. Listen to me. I never orchestrated a deal with Scott. I never met him personally. But through Tommy, through Timmy, Timmy could control the fouls. He knew what the line was. He knew the tempo of the game. My guys that I was working with like, what the fuck's going on? We went from fucking clear picking to it was like, we were like being greedy and trying to get more games. We figured we had another NBA referee working with us. If you don't recall Scott Foster from season one, he is a current NBA referee who started in the NBA the same year as Tim Donahue, 1994. Foster and Donahue talked on the phone a lot during the scandal. 134 times over five and a half months. There has been a lot of speculation about the nature of Foster and Donahue's relationship, which is why this revelation from Batista piques my interest. One in six? Seven? Foster games? According to Tommy, it was two. Here's what Tommy said in season one. So I have Timmy as 40 and five. It was actually 40 and seven, but two of the games that we lost were Foster's that Timmy was giving us to throw off Vegas, you know? Two games wasn't enough. Seven and two are very different numbers. Plus, I never really focused on the words, throw off Vegas. So I called Tommy to clarify. Okay, so there were seven Foster games, correct? I believe there was five. That's my take. There was five Foster games. That you was, say five, but you I just say five. seven. Yep. You can count on me as being correct. I love you, Tom, but you said, I just listened to the episode again, you said there was two. There was only two Foster games. Oh, I, there was five where, I really said that? <laughs> I, I did, don't, Don, did Donahue ask him, you to say there were two? No, there was, there was five. Tommy clarified that he got mixed up and Donahue was actually 40 and two, and that Foster's five losses put them at 40 and seven. He maintains that there were five Foster games and that they were all losers. I believe Tommy here and think he made an honest mistake. And if you're doing the math at home, that means that Tim Donahue, according to his best friend and partner, was actually 40 and two that season, which would mean that 95% of Tim Donahue refereed games were winners against the spread. I'm trying to wrap my head around all of this when Tommy gives me some additional context. You remember they all lost? All lost. Did they lose badly? The spreads and stuff? Yeah, they weren't, yeah, they weren't close. You know what I mean, Tim? In my eyes, what's had nothing to do with it? You think he had nothing to do with it because all of his games were losers? Yeah, and Dunning, he kept trying to give me 
foster games, but and I would give him the bad of it. He's like, I don't want any more foster games. Donahue contends that his relationship with Scott Foster was completely innocuous, that the phone calls to Scott were part of his routine, that they were just two friends who really liked to talk with each other. I didn't talk with Batista in season one, so this is new, but Batista is telling me that he was actively betting on Foster's games, that Donahue provided picks on seven Foster games in total, and that those games went one and six against the spread. The big thing I'm learning is that Foster games were a regular part of the trio's gambling equation. They bet on his games often. Batista also added this. The fact that he fucking is still in the NBA, that's another evidence of the cover-up of the NBA. Because they have his phone records. We have his fucking phone records. But that's the key. Tim did tell you that Scott Foster was part of it. Oh, yes, he did. He did. If you take his 2006-2007 season, you have his fucking phone records, and you see that he called every game that he worked, it will match with his schedule prior to the game and after the game, and a few times during halftime. Tim Donahue has been open about the fact that Foster was a part of his scheme. The question is, and always has been, did Scott Foster know that he was a part of his best friend's master plan? Did Foster have any idea that Donahue was betting on his games? Did Foster do anything on the court to aid those bets? The best person to answer questions about Scott Foster's relationship with Donahue is, of course, Scott Foster. So I reached out to the NBA, and I asked them to connect me with Scott. The league, who didn't respond to any of my inquiries before the release of Whistleblower Season 1, wrote me back that day and informed me that Foster had, quote, respectfully declined to participate. The email continued, quote, the situation with Mr. Donahue concluded over a decade ago. Scott had to deal with a lot of unfair treatment at that time, parentheses, and since, and it's not something he chooses to revisit. Like all of us, he has moved forward. It seems like the NBA's PR strategy with the release of these bonus episodes and Netflix's untold episode on Donahue will be this happened a long time ago, we're not going to revisit the past. But when it comes to Scott Foster, the past is still the present. How are basketball fans supposed to move forward when so many questions still surround Foster? Batista and Tommy aren't sure about the number of games, but they're sure that Foster's games were all or almost all losers and that Donahue provided Foster's games to Batista to, quote, throw off Vegas. What does throw off Vegas mean? Well, Donahue and Martino began to notice around January that the betting lines on Donahue's games were fluctuating wildly. We touched on this in season one, but odds makers are pretty damn good at their jobs. When they put a betting line out, even if sophisticated, professional bettors the ones moving big money bet one side of the line aggressively, the line usually only moves by a point or two. Because Batista and his crew were putting so much money on Donahue's games, millions upon millions of dollars per game, the betting lines on Donahue's games would often move by four points, five points, six points, sometimes more. 
afraid that the NBA or betting regulators might see that line movement and start asking questions. Donahue wanted Batista to put millions on Foster's games and create chaos in the market. Donahue wanted to give regulators, the league, or anyone paying attention something else to look at. He wanted to distract them. He wanted to throw them off his scent. One thing I'm sure of is that with Batista starting to open up, it's time to go back. Back to the slice of southeastern Pennsylvania that is responsible for this whole mess. We'll get all the, the necessary audio when I'm in Delco. Okay, all right, good deal. And just like that, I'm back. Delaware County, Delco, the true hero of this story. Can't go left here, Tim. After not talking for a number of years, Tommy and Batista have recently reconnected and become friendly again. We all agreed to meet outside Tommy's salon. doing lunch at Anthony's, formerly Lamb Tavern. Batista speaks lovingly and longingly about the good old days of Lamb Tavern. He and the animals, the group of Delco gamblers that Batista belonged to, where he earned his nickname, Sheep, game plan their schemes here. They watched their biggest bets win and lose inside the tavern's walls. This restaurant holds a special place in Batista's heart. He's telling us all about it when Tommy gets a call. That's right. Oh, Tommy. Where? Call him answering. No, please. Not in the car. Not no way. We're not going to talk. Everyone's got to be. Shh, zip. Go, Tom, please. I don't want to hear. Tom, do much, it for me. No, too much pressure. We'll it's do it. not pressure. Jim, I, don't, I haven't been answered. It's fourth and goal on the, on the fucking one yard line. Answer the fucking phone. Come on, Tommy. Let's hear what he has to say. If somebody's listened to Whistleblower, the first question they usually ask me is, when was the last time you spoke with Tim Donahue? And the truth is, I haven't spoken to Donahue since we released episode two of Whistleblower. He thought we vilified him. I disagree. It is what it is. I give you that context because Donahue and Martino are still close, still best friends, which makes this phone call incredibly awkward for Tommy. When Donahue hears this and pictures me, Batista, who he's also not very fond of, and Tommy riding around Delco together, he's not going to be happy. And Tommy, who's only here because I love hanging out with Tommy, will be, as always, stuck in the middle. Gambling? Yeah. Taking a bet. Taking oh, a taking a bet. Yeah. We walk into Anthony's, and Jimmy reaches across the bar to shake hands with the bartender, a buddy, since the Lamb Tavern days. Oh, thank you. Thank you, sweetie. You are welcome. We sit down. I pull out the recorder, and a few minutes into our conversation... I just want to say one thing. Is that on? Turn it off. I don't know why I thought it would be easier recording with Batista in person. We were at the table for 10 minutes before he asked me to turn off the recorder, and Batista was quiet during that time as everyone else talked. In those 10 minutes, I watched his eyes dart around the room, on the lookout. This is how his brain is trained to work. Were there any feds around, Philly mob guys, friends of his ex-wife? He wasn't going to talk 
until he was fully aware of his surroundings. I turned the recorder off and Batista relaxed. He spent the rest of the meal telling stories about his days in the underground sports betting world. Curacao, Vegas, Macau, win a million, lose a million, snort a line, do it again. Great stories, all of them unrecorded. We made plans to reconnect for dinner after Anthony's, and I called Tommy on the way back to the Airbnb. Tommy. Yes, Jim. So, first meeting with Jimmy Batista was interesting. Yeah, he doesn't have much trust in people, Tim. What's the best way to gain Jimmy's trust? I mean, I only have a short period of time on this trip. There's no, there's no way. It's not going to happen. Nothing recorded and pessimism from an optimist. Great. What was the place you wanted to meet at for dinner tonight? What's it called, the hideaway? The hideaway. So meet you at the hideaway at 7 p.m. Meet you and you, Batista? Perfect. Can't wait. The hideaway is aptly named. It's a sports bar tucked inside a quiet residential neighborhood in Wilmington, Delaware. Tommy could not have chosen a better spot. The hideaway is a 10 out of 10 on the Delco scale, only locals. We sit down at a table outside. Jimmy orders onion rings. Tommy, a bottle of Prosecco. We talked for an hour about a lot of things. The Sixers, Batista's sobriety, he's been clean for over a decade, then we started talking about the 2006-2007 NBA season. Much to my surprise, Batista didn't ask to turn the recorder off. When you look back at that now, 15 years later, how does that make you feel? Uh, bad choice. I made a good living just doing what I was doing, just book embedding and moving money. And I just, you know, it was just a bad decision. I look back because the people that got involved. Batista points across the table at Tommy. That got hurt from it. Yeah. His family, him. Kids. Kids, my kids. My parents. If they were in the game and trying to make money off it, you knew what you're doing then. That's a risk you were taking. And everybody wanted to make money. I didn't need to get into bed with Timmy. Here I'm working with the best handicappers in the world. I got the Chinaman, I got the Greek, I got the computer, I got the Curtis brothers. I can make a million a year like nothing, just moving money. I never graduated college, I quit college. I was a waiter, I was a bartender, I was a busboy, and now I'm singing all of a sudden, I'm making fucking, I can make 50 grand a fucking week. Are you kidding me? Moving money, like nothing. I didn't eat Timmy. And I, How are we doing out here? We're doing great. Good. How about some dessert? Oh, I'm stuffed. I'm so full. I ate a burger and onion rings. <laughs> the waitress leaves to get the check, and I catch Batista dabbing his eye with his napkin. On my way back to the Airbnb, I call Tommy. Hey, Tommy. What's up, Tim? Dinner it got a little emotional there. Have you seen him cry when talking about the scandal before? No. It's been hard for everybody, and I know, like, we rebounded from it. Some of us not, 
as good as others. And I had to look away because I get choked up too. When it comes to trust, you think after the meal we had tonight and after the day we had today, that he trusts me enough to sit down and open up about something we talked about regarding the scandal? That's the thing. Like, I don't know what he's holding back. <laughs> All right, so I'll meet Batista tomorrow again at Anthony's. I'll let you know how it goes, but I'm hoping that we can get more of the story tomorrow. I'll hit you up later. Beautiful. Ten years ago, I gained Tim Donahue's trust, and he took me down a rabbit hole that culminated in the creation of this podcast. And now, I'm hoping I've reached that point with Jimmy Batista. Because Batista, prior to Donahue, spent three decades in the sports betting world. And often, when he tells me to turn off the recorder, he's telling me things like this. I, I would say that throughout the, over the past 30 years, there's been rogue officials between uh, NBA, collegiate, 25 to 30 people. 25 to 30 referees. Yes, have messed around. Batista clarified that those 25 to 30 referees included all major sports, not just basketball. But 25 to 30 referees across pro and college, basketball, baseball, and football, is a lot of referees. Who are they? What does Batista mean when he says, messed around? How many games were compromised? When it comes to Donahue, the most important thing that Batista can help me unravel is the Scott Foster of it all. Because I've been trying to fully understand the relationship between Donahue and Foster for over a decade. And I don't think I've ever gotten the full story. Because 15 years ago, David Stern, the ultimate PR magician, delivered a pitch-perfect, brilliant press conference after news of the scandal broke. It was there that Stern branded Tim Donahue a rogue criminal. Because we think we have here a rogue, isolated criminal. Less sophisticated commissioners, the Bud Seelings of the world, would have likely collapsed under that kind of pressure. Stern didn't. He rose to the challenge. He saved the league. But it's been 15 years. The NBA's PR strategy cannot be, this was a long time ago, everything has changed, and refused to let Scott Foster talk. The next day, I met Batista again at Anthony's. No recorder, just two guys, a French onion soup, and a Caesar salad. At the end of the meal, I asked Batista if we could talk that night about Foster. He said yes. And that evening, Batista and Tommy came to my Airbnb. I'm just gonna treat this like a regular interview. Okay. Then we'll, we'll just slowly get into it. But Jimmy, start if you would by just saying your name and giving us a quick background on who you are. After years of trying, I'd finally herded the sheep. And he was in a chair sitting across from me, ready to talk. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> I got to get in a rhythm. I just, you know. My name is Jim Batista. My alias is Baba, Jimmy the Sheep, El Jefe, Horatio, Mr. Black, 
episodes of Whistleblower are brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. When I'm not making audio documentaries, exploring the intersection of sports and crime, I'm working with the incredibly talented team at Underdog to build the world's best sports company. Underdog is the easiest way to play fantasy sports, and our Pick'em game is the best way to spice up your NBA season. Just pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat line in each game for the chance to win up to 20 times your money in a single game. Take a second before episode two to go to underdogfantasy.com or download the Underdog Fantasy app. Make a deposit using the code WHISTLE and we'll match your first deposit up to $100. That's Underdog Fantasy, code WHISTLE. W-H-I-S-T-L-E. Whistleblower is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Whistleblower Media in association with Cadence 13. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV. Myself and Doug Matica are creators and executive producers on behalf of Whistleblower Media. Our co-executive producer is Cole Ocasio. Our lead producer is Alex Vespasted. Co-producers are Mason Lindsay, Matt Keller, and Paul Kasheri. Bonus episodes produced by Patty Cotter. Sound design mixing and mastering by Cooper Skinner. Additional mixing by Devin Johnson. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover design and illustration by Mr. Soul. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, Ryan Nord in the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella of Workhouse Media, Max Hacker and John Bagakis, the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Cadence 13, and to Michael Imperioli. Check out his new podcast, Talking Sopranos, wherever you get your podcasts.